Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. I'm David Alt, and you're listening to the Wicked Library. Warning. The Wicked Library is a horror fiction podcast created for a mature audience. Our stories contain graphic descriptions of pain, murder, violence, blood, betrayal, and inhumanity. Monsters win, people die, and hope is often shattered. There is also beauty, heart, catharsis, and raw emotion. Fear may be deeply personal, but we all share it. If at any time a story takes you to a place too dark, turn on the lights, press pause, or press stop. And always remember that unlike in the real world, these nightmares and your participation in them are under your control. Hello. And welcome to our first Extra Wicked Anthology episode of 2022. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I thank you for joining us. These episodes are made possible by our Patreon supporters at the $5 a month level and above, and these stories are heard first by those supporters, later compiled into anthology episodes to make sure our authors and voice actors' work is heard by the full audience. Now that we're back into the swing of things for Season 11, supporters will get a new tale each month. And on that note... A sincere thank you to those of you who are supporting the show. Without you, this show would not be possible. Our authors and everyone else involved in making the show, thank you for your support of this show and of independent horror fiction. If you're not yet supporting the show, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. For as little as $3 a month, you can help make the show you love possible and get fun rewards. A lot of hard work and money goes into making the wicked library and we really do rely on this support to help us pay the authors, voice actors, composer, and artists. In addition to knowing that you're a part of making this show possible, you also get fun rewards like ad-free episodes at higher bit rates, access to bonus stories like today's episode, and at higher levels of support, even more. You can support us at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. Also, a big thank you to those of you who took the time to rate the show five stars and write a short review for us on iTunes. Your reviews do help others find the show, and of course, we love hearing from you. Now, I'm excited to announce that our resident composer, Nico Vitese, has created a limited-run audio drama podcast called Connections in celebration of his first full album of the same name. The audio drama will include five episodes, including one written by me and another by TWL alum author M. Regan. You'll also hear some voices you know from the Wicked Library, including Erica Sanderson, David Alt and me. Now, these episodes are full audio drama experiences, similar to what we do with Victoria's Lift and The Private Collector, with rich sound design, full casts, and custom scores. I hope you will subscribe at anchor.com forward slash we talk of dreams. That's anchor.com forward slash we talk of dreams. That's the official feed for the show. Now, if you listen on iTunes, like I know a lot of you do, I created a quick link for our listeners so that you can find it easily. You can just subscribe at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash connections. Today, we present three dark tales, 
Cleared for Reentry, written by Brianna Morgan and told by Graham Rowett. Portraiture, written by Davis Walden and told by David Alt. The Lady of the Wood, written by Cody Mower and told by me. All three feature custom scores written by Nico Viteze of We Talk of Dreams. start off with Cleared for Reentry by Brianna Morgan. Graham Rowett performs this tale about two men ready to end their mission aboard the space station they've lived and worked on together for months. Excited to depart, the tension is palpable, and things might not go as smoothly as planned. Mission Control cleared them for reentry at 8. There was nothing left to do but get the station ready for all the new arrivals. It was only a matter of time. The station would keep spinning to keep the artificial gravity going until the new group of astronauts arrived, so they proceeded as normal. Doherty rocked back on his heels as he studied the glowing monitor. ETA looks to be seven more hours. You think we can get all our shit done by then? Cleaver scratched his ear. Not like we have a choice. What if your ETA is wrong? He waved a hand. It won't be wrong. It could be. Doherty sighed. We made it this long without fighting. Let's not ruin the trip home. Cleaver said nothing. Instead, he spun around in his chair and typed his name into the server. It prompted him for an administrator password, and he groaned. Need you to? Doherty stood and smoothed out his jumpsuit. He walked over to Cleaver and leaned over his shoulder, stretching around him and putting his hands on the keys. When Cleaver didn't move, Doherty shot him a look. Cleaver muttered a curse and scooted back from the terminal. He was close enough to still make out Doherty's password. Anther. Obvious choice for a scientist who spent all day working with plants. What frustrated Cleaver most was that besides serving as the designated scientist of the mission, Doherty had also been dubbed captain, despite his inexperience. Cleaver had spent two months aboard the ISS last year. Meanwhile, before this mission, Doherty had never been to space. He confided in Cleaver that spaceflight still terrified him, and Cleaver knew no one could convince Doherty to stay on that station any longer. He was eager to get his feet on solid ground and spend time with his wife and their baby. If Cleaver had to guess, they'd only made him captain because they felt sorry for him. I'm going to take inventory, Doherty said. Count the rations. I'll be here. Doherty turned and walked away, disappearing down the hall. Once he left, Cleaver sighed. The chair squealed as he rolled it closer to the terminal. He dreaded this part the most, typing up a summary of all their work. It was the part he'd loathed most about the last mission, too, and he was only doing it now because he had to. Doherty got to skip all the grunt work. Cleaver's fingers hovered above the keys. Then he started typing. October 6, 2089. Mission Theta Uneventful. Chris Doherty and I, Ryan Cleaver, have... Cleaver paused. 
What had they accomplished? Sure, the mission had succeeded at face value. They'd successfully cultivated whatever herb hybrid Doherty wouldn't shut up about. But what had he done? What achievements could Cleaver claim about this mission? I keep shit running, he muttered. I double-checked the fuel lines and the oxygen and... But Doherty did those things, too. No matter what angle you viewed the situation from, Cleaver had contributed nothing. They'd sent him to space for nothing. Doherty would revel in glory back home while Cleaver stood biting his tongue. His jaw clenched. He closed his eyes. He counted. One, two, three, four... Cleaver! Doherty's voice echoed from down the hall. It sounded pinched. I need you in the pantry, please. Cleaver bristled. Wasn't Doherty supposed to be smart? Since when couldn't he handle inventory on his own? He opened his eyes and stared at the blinking cursor on the screen. If he didn't head down there, Doherty would keep bothering him until he did. If Doherty kept bothering him, he wouldn't get his work done. So he had little choice. Cleaver got up from the chair and headed back toward the pantry. His footsteps boomed in the station's silence. Even with the anti-gravity system running, the only other sound was a low, pulsating hum. When Cleaver got to the pantry, Doherty stood in front of a row of shelves, brow creased as he studied what should have been a great deal more supplies. Between the herbs and vegetables they'd grown and the freeze-dried military-grade rations, they should have had plenty of food not only for themselves, but for the new astronauts as well. It would surprise Cleaver if they weren't restocking. Nevertheless, it paid to be as well-prepared as possible. Something, Doherty said in a low voice. Something is not adding up here. I can't make heads or tails of this. He tapped his stylus against the tablet he was holding. We should have had enough food here for months. At this rate, well, not even a restock will help if the new crew is staying here for more than a week. Cleaver chewed the inside of his cheek. And they are, aren't they? He nodded. Six months, if I remember correctly. Shit. If he'd been outside, Cleaver might have spit. They're bringing food, though, surely. It's a lighter craft. I don't... Doherty let his voice trail off. He looked down at the tablet, studying it for a moment, before turning his gaze on Cleaver. The corners of Doherty's mouth turned down. He lifted an eyebrow at Cleaver. Cleaver crossed his arms. What? I'm saying... Well, I'm not saying we have a problem, but we kind of have a problem. Based on my calculations, the crew that's coming is screwed. I don't think Mission Control can just have them turn around and get more. Hell, monetary constraints for our mission alone. Say whatever you want to say. Did you... Did you sabotage our rations? Cleaver's jaw went slack. You're joking. When I last counted, we were fine, Doherty said. Then last night you came in here and... You could have come in and done it just as easily. It's a big station. We don't always have eyes on each other. I'm committed to the mission. What, and I'm not? Doherty looked down at the tablet. A muscle twitched in his face. Cleaver had never wanted to punch someone more than he did in that moment. Still, Doherty was silent. You can't be serious right now. You can't honestly... Fuck, I can't believe you think I'd do this. Why not? It makes sense. We're the only two people here. Well, you could have tampered with the food. Doherty scoffed. 
I grew most of our supplies. It took a lot of time and patience. Why would I thwart my own efforts like that? Cleaver dragged a hand down his face. Maybe you're not ready to return after all. All the blood drained from Doherty's face. You're not going to report it, man. You can't. I have to, don't I? He reached for the tablet. Doherty held it tighter against his chest, well out of Cleaver's reach. Look, if I don't let them know, if I don't warn them about the supplies, the people coming here will starve. You don't want that, Doherty. I know you don't. Fuck, Doherty said. Cleaver, Ryan, I have to go home. I can't. I know. Cleaver uncrossed his arms and let them fall by his side. But if you're not only sabotaging the mission, but also accusing me of doing it, that's going to be an issue. I have to get off this ship. Back on land, said Doherty. Why would I sabotage this mission and risk going to prison? Being separated from my family. I'm just telling you I have a duty to the mission. No matter what Doherty said, he presented no actual evidence of his side of the story. Although Cleaver couldn't prove his own innocence, it wasn't like Doherty could prove him guilty either. They were at an impasse. The intercom blared. The astronauts froze. Doherty and Cleaver come in. This is Mission Control. We've received word that the updated estimated time of arrival for the new team of astronauts is T-minus two hours. Thank you for your diligence. Fuck! Cleaver threw up his hands. There's too much shit to do. I can't stay here. We'll figure this out later. Without waiting for Doherty to interject, he stormed out of the pantry and headed down the hall to the crew quarters. He counted again. One, two, three, four. As he walked, his shoulders relaxed and his jaw unclenched. His breathing slowed. By the time he reached his cabin, he hoped he'd have his anger fully under his control. A soft hiss broke through the hum of the station. Cleaver stopped. He tilted his head. The hiss was quiet, but unmistakable, and it couldn't mean anything good. The oxygen lines ran overhead, carrying fresh air throughout the station and sending the carbon dioxide they exhaled to the greenhouse. When Cleaver looked up at the lines, he saw two neat tears in the line. Carbon dioxide leaked out into the air. If it didn't get fixed, or if the tears got worse, happened elsewhere along the line, one of them could suffocate. Cleaver pressed his lips together. He left the lines and continued the journey to his cabin. When he got there, Doherty stood near Cleaver's bunk with his back to the open door. It looked like he was holding something, but Cleaver couldn't be sure. Chris, Cleaver said, what the hell are you doing? Doherty whirled around. Light glinted off the edge of a knife. He held it in the air. Where did you get this and why do you have it? There were plenty of knives in the kitchen, Cleaver said. Anyone could pick a knife up, even you. You're not answering me. I am. Cleaver stepped through the doorway. He stood close enough to reach out and touch Doherty if he wanted. Doherty stepped back. Put the knife down and we'll talk. Answer my questions. A blinking red light in the hallway attracted Cleaver's attention. The cams. He hadn't thought about being recorded. Of course, there weren't any cameras in their bunks, but everywhere else. I saw the lines on my way here, Doherty said. They were... they looked... looked like someone cut them. With something sharp. Cleaver turned back to Doherty. He put his hands up, palms facing out. 
For all I know, you cut the lines, just like you could have thrown the food out. We can watch the cams, Doherty said. Play the footage back. You'll see. Or maybe you will. You don't still think. Cleaver lunged forward and knocked Doherty against the wall. Doherty grunted and dropped the knife. Cleaver pinned his body to the wall with an arm against his throat, threatening his windpipe. Their eyes met. You don't have to do this, Doherty said. Cleaver dropped his arm from Doherty's neck and crouched to grab the knife. Doherty dropped an elbow on Cleaver's back, knocking the wind out of him. Somehow, Cleaver staggered back before Doherty's knee could hit his groin. The knife arced like a ribbon as Cleaver drew it back. Ryan! Doherty flattened himself against the wall as though trying to sink into it. Listen to me, Cleaver. You don't know what... Cleaver's blade whistled as it came down on Doherty's neck and swiped across his throat. The cut bubbled with a thin red seam that tore and unleashed a river. Doherty's blood bloomed over his jumpsuit. Cleaver lunged again, and again, and again, and again. Throughout it, his heart pounded so loudly he couldn't hear Doherty's screams. It wasn't until Doherty's eyes glazed over that Cleaver let go of the knife. Blood coated Cleaver's hands in the front of his jumpsuit. Warm wetness dripped down his cheek. He reached up and wiped it with the back of his hand, smearing it over his mouth and chin. Okay, he said. Okay, we're ready. He nudged Doherty with the toe of his boot. His body didn't stir. Yes, sir, said Cleaver. That can work. He thought about the cams and what Doherty had said about watching the footage to figure out who the lying bastard was. The red light in the hallway blinked at him. Cleaver's jaw tightened. I'll figure it out. He couldn't comprehend how he got to the terminal so quickly. One minute he was in his bunk and the next sitting at the computer. Autopilot, he guessed. His hands flew over the keyboard to spell out Doherty's password. Cleaver deleted the video logs. He severed their connection to mission control. He touched his face. He waited. Maybe with the new crew, he would use a different knife. Next up, we have Portraiture, written by Davis Walden. David Alt performs this tale about a grieving man who has lost his wife and son. When he visits a painter with the uncanny ability that allows him to contact the deceased, dark truths are revealed. Portraiture by Davis Walden Mr. Bartlett, a widower and sadly now an orphaner, stood in the archway of our home, wringing his coat and hat in his hands as I tried to coax him into our parlour room. He was staring at all of the paintings on the wall, portraits done by Mark of our many clients. Bartlett, a gruff man in his thirties, was stiff as a board. Allow me to hang those up for you, I said, my hand already gently clasping the items in his arms. Bartlett was looking at Mark, who had already set up the canvas and his paints next to the seance table, in some mix of apprehension, wonder, and hope. I think that's what it was. The nerves of a sceptical, now desperate in his grief, man who was told to bottle up all of his emotions growing up, 
a man who believed the supernatural was nothing more than a game for women to scare themselves with, a game for more sensitive men. Bartlett swallowed. And you just, what, have me sit here? I took the items out of his hands. We'll be attempting to contact either your son or your wife, I said. I hung up the items and guided him to a chair. He pulled it out himself and sat down. Though, be aware, it's hard to pin down one spirit, let alone two. Bartlett's eyes went wide. Are they in different places? Mr. Bartlett, to the best of your knowledge, were they good people? I asked. He didn't seem to mind the directness of the question. Yes, they were the most incredible... He stopped, a small choke as some tears welled up in his eyes. Sorry, they were. They very much were. I placed a well-timed hand on his shoulder. Then I am sure that they are in a good place. Mark smiled at me the way I always loved him for smiling. We'd been living together for five years now, a pair of bachelors from the countryside desperately in love with one another. Of course, we didn't tell anyone that. To the public eye, we were brothers, both parents deceased. If anyone pried further than that, Mark was a half-brother I had known all my life. He had no prospects, and I was far too interested in my studies to entertain the notion of romance. At night, however, I had all the time in the world to entertain those urges, and I made sure to entertain Mark's as well. Mark leaned against the wall, arms crossed and a leg kicked back, an informal stance that made audiences find him a little more aloof and curious. There are many places beyond our world, Mark said, Many heavens, many hells, many in-betweens. It is our job to track down spirits with your aid, lure them to us, and come into contact with them. Lure them, Bartlett said. You brought the items that we asked for, I said. He realized what I was saying and fished around his pockets. He placed a locket on the table and glanced back at his coat on the rack. One second. Bartlett got up and pulled a stuffed bear a small thing for a baby, out of a coat pocket. This was Quinn's favourite toy. It was the first thing we ever bought for him. We... I... I... I didn't want to, you know, enter it with him. I, I just... I, I just wanted something for myself to remember him by. Thank you for these, I said. Bartlett opened the locket and out came a lock of hair. Louise's, I presumed. He petted the strands before placing it on the table in front of him. So, um, how does this work? Bartlett said. Well, Mark's form of contact is very unique, as is his style of painting, I said, turning a hand out towards the other spirit portraits. They weren't as naturalistic as the critical eye would have liked, more close approximations of human form. A series of expressive, romantic, and heavy strokes that made the subject appear more blurry. One time, as I laid curled up against his back, pressing my legs in between his, I asked Mark if he saw the spirits as he painted them, almost inhuman, overexposed photographs strung together by blurred lines, struggling to maintain shape. He told me he never has any memory and that that is just how the paintings emerge. 
I rolled my eyes, though there will always be that part of me that believes he is telling me the truth. He dislikes lying to me so much. We'll begin, as we always do, with making the room as dark as possible, I said. Why is it always dark in these sorts of things? Bartlett chuckled, not quite suspicious, not quite sceptical, not quite nervous, somewhere in between. Darkness aids us in our exploration, I began. It's also just how I like it, Mark said. I smiled and continued. We want to be able to enter a space in our mind that brings us comfort in order to contact the other side. Without it, we'll lose focus, and our trip into the realms beyond will be far more difficult. Death and sleep have much in common, so it only makes some sense that contacting spirits is akin to dreaming. Bartlett pointed at the canvas. And you'll just paint them? Paint them or whoever comes into contact with us, Mark said. It's hard to control. But it will be them, correct? Bartlett said. Yes, I said and looked at Mark. Mark sucked his cheek and glanced at his paints. Let's get ready to begin. Have you brought the payment? Bartlett and I sat across from one another, Mark off in the corner. As always, Mark held his brush at the ready. He began his works with darks before moving on to lights. His dark brown hair caught the candlelight just right. It dashed across in orange glows, flinting across his concentrated pupils. In between Bartlett and I was the spirit board, designed into the table itself. Elaborate carvings of the sun, the moon, a yes, a no, the letters of the alphabet, and the Arabic numerals traced across the oak. A wine glass sat in the middle. Bartlett held both of the talismans in his hands, rubbing his fingers across them as if the mere act of holding them would be sufficient enough to bring their spirits back to him, or to give him the strength to be prepared to see them. Mark smiled at me and nodded. We were ready to begin. I placed my palms down across the wood. We, the living, wish to look beyond the veil between our world and the next, to seek out information regarding Louise Bartlett and Quinn Bartlett, both of whom were taken far too soon from life. Husband and father Jonathan Bartlett is with us here. He carries two tokens of the deceased, a lock of hair and a teddy bear. The wine glass shifted ever so slightly. Bartlett gulped. Are either of you with us? Mark whispered something to himself. I looked over at him. He was tracing a shape on the canvas. The glass made its way over to the yes. Which one of you is it? Bartlett spat out. He was looking around the room for any sign of them. Bartlett didn't notice, but Mark was staring past him at the space behind him. Mark was studying something. He didn't look the way that he always did when he was sensing a spirit. This time he was more... curious? No, no, that's not the correct word. He was apprehensive, concerned. The glass ran over to the queue. Quinn, Bartlett choked out. Hi there, hi. Quinn, is that you? I asked. Are you with us? The glass ran over to the yes. How are you feeling today, Quinn? Are you happy to see your father? The glass circled the board and landed on no. 
Bartlett shifted in his seat. He came a long way to see you, Quinn. He's been wanting to talk with you. No. Bartlett covered his face in his hands. He started to sob. Mr. Bartlett, I'm... The glass ran over to W. It ran over to the next letter. E-A-R-S-M-O-M-M-Y. Where's... Where's Mummy? She's not with him, Bartlett asked. Why isn't she with my son? She should be with him. Brush strokes began to slash against the canvas. I looked over at Mark. His eyes were glazed over as if sleepwalking. He was fixated on the point behind Bartlett, painting haphazardly and getting splotches all over himself. W-E-A-R-S-M-O-M-M-Y Where is my son? Bartlett asked. He gripped down on the table until you could see the whites of his knuckles. Mr. Bartlett, please, I said. Remain calm. Quinn, where are you? I-D-O-N-T-N-O Where is he? Tell me where he is. Quinn, how are you feeling? S-C-A-R-E-D Bartlett looked like he was about to burst into tears again. I imagine it's scary being alone, Quinn, I said. But you're a brave boy, aren't you? I-W-A-N-T-T-O-G-O-H-O-M-E Your father's right here, Quinn. We're here for you to... The glass picked itself up, slammed back down, and wheeled across the table. H-E-L-P You need help, I asked. Help with what? Mark scooped a splash of red with his fingers and brushed it across the canvas. I-T-H-U-R-T-S Bartlett stood up and looked around. I'm here! You're safe! It's me! S-H-E-S-H-E-R-E You run away from her, Bartlett called out. You run as fast as you can! Mr. Bartlett, what's going on? Bartlett held out a hand to silence me. H-E-L-P You stay away, boy, you stay away! S-H-E-S-H-E-R-E S-H-E-S-H The glass stopped moving. Bartlett and I looked at it. A heavy silence fell upon the room. All that was heard was Mark's feverish brushstrokes that were faster and harder than I had seen before. The glass shook. It spun on itself and began moving to the letters once again. H-E-L-L-O-J-O-N Louise, Bartlett said, venom on his tongue. Mr. Bartlett, what is happening? You stay away from our boy, you witch! O-U-R-B-O-Y The glass sprinted over to no and circled it over and over again. The glass flew off the table and smashed into Mark's head. Mark! I yelled and stumbled over to him. He didn't even notice that it had hit him. I held his bleeding head and wiped the blood out of his eyes. I took off my jacket and used it as an impromptu handkerchief, scrubbing off the blood and scanning for any broken glass in his hair or scalp. It didn't matter what I did, though. It's not like anything in the room, not even a disturbance as grand as this, could distract Mark from a painting once a session was still in motion. I reeled around. Mr. Bartlett, explain yourself. Bartlett held a knife in his hand. 
Take me. Take me instead of him. Don't you dare harm him any longer. I released Mark, too damned focused on his work to help from my grip, and darted over to Bartlett. He began to press the knife into the side of his neck. No! I called out and yanked down on his arm. You don't understand what you're dealing with, Bartlett said. Do not attempt to stop me. Bartlett, listen to yourself. Bartlett gripped me by the collar and threw me aside. This has been a long time coming, Bartlett said. A long time coming. I tried to stumble back up, but Bartlett brought his boot down on my stomach. I screamed out in pain as all of my breath rushed out of me. I hacked and coughed, clutching my abdomen as I rolled over onto my knees. I'm sorry, Bartlett said. I truly am. I didn't want to hurt you. I looked up at Bartlett brandishing the knife, and despite how careful we'd been, I wondered if he knew about Mark and I. If Mark and I were too careless, too in love to notice that someone like Bartlett had become offended by our mere existence and decided to put an end to us both with an elaborate ruse. Bartlett looked over at the table. He placed the locket down on it. Use the locket to answer yes or no. Will you take me instead? Free him? The locket rattled and darted over to yes. It circled it wildly over and over and over again. I held up a hand. Mr. Bartlett! Bartlett took a breath and dug the knife into his neck. He gurgled as he slid the knife, chopping through his arteries and Adam's apple, each pull making a sickening, crunching noise. Arterial spray dazzled out and began to paint the walls of the house and myself in his blood. I edged up against the wall, attempting to block my face as he fell to his knees and choked on the blood rising up inside his throat. He clawed at his throat and coughed up a mouthful of blood onto me. Then he fell to the floor, kicking and coughing as blood poured out all around him. He could find no purchase in the puddle of blood he had left, his boots squeaking with every reddening shudder. Slivers of blood still emerged, tunnelling out of his neck as his heart pushed out its final pulses. His mouth moved every now and then like a fish out of water. After what seemed like an eon, finally he fell still. I gripped the wood of the wall behind him and hoisted myself up. I couldn't bring myself to look at Bartlett's body any longer. Instead, I made my way over to Mark. I unbuttoned my shirt, yanked it off, and threw it into the shadows where it landed in a wet squelch. All this time, Mark had been painting. His brushstrokes slowed, then his right hand fell to his side. He looked at me and clarity sunk in. He was back to me. Oh, God, Mark muttered. Murray, what happened? Are you okay? You hurt? I nodded. Mark held his hands up to me and held me against his chest as I cried. He shushed me and grew very quiet. No doubt he noticed Bartlett on the floor, dead. Did I do this? Mark asked. <laughs> How could he ever think such a thing? No, I said. He did it to himself. I don't understand what happened. It was horrible. Mark stayed silent. You know, don't you? I asked. Mark opened up his mouth to begin. It'll be in the papers soon, I'm sure. Would you like to talk about it now? I gripped him tighter. Not yet. Just hold me, please. Okay. I looked over Mark's shoulder at the painting. I stifled a gasp. 
A misshapen woman, long and spidery, filled up the entire frame. She was nothing but darkness, except for pale blonde hair that framed her face. In her far too long arms and hands, and fingers with too many joints, was a boy of five years old. Her hands were wrapped around him like a mother protecting her son. Or, I realized in horror, like a predator smothering its kill. The boy's mouth was open in a scream. How many choices do you make in a day? In a year? In a lifetime? How many really matter in the end? Do you agonize over the small ones and avoid the important ones? Here on my lift, in this place where all things are possible, your choice matters. Your choices require sacrifice. Will you make the right one? Choose to listen to the lift in iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, and now iHeartRadio. Next up, we have The Lady of the Wood by Cody Mower. I tell this tale about two best friends who go hunting for the ghost of the infamous witch of the Maine woods, Emmeline Gurney, who supposedly married her son on Satan's orders. Entering the old pine forest of Fayette, they find they are in way over their heads. The Lady of the Wood by Cody Mower Emmeline Gurney married a son she didn't recall, so they dragged her out and buried her under the wall. Her ghost still walks between the trees, where she'll wander till God sets her free. When I first heard of Emmeline Gurney, it was already many years after I had met her, if met is the right word. In fact, it had been 13 years since I could have done with 13 more, but sometimes... Accidents happen. My brother had dropped off a tote of old stuff that had been molding in the basement of my mother's house. I hadn't spoken to her since getting out of the Marine Corps, and I guess she wanted me out of her life just as bad as I wanted to be out of hers. Anyway, I had shoved the tote up in the garage, but my nine-year-old couldn't help himself. Before I had the chance to go back inside, he was already digging through it. Among the books, binders, old cell phones, and trading cards was a small baggie of SD cards. What are these? He said, shoving the bag in my hands. They're like little memory cards you store photos on. Why, isn't that what the cloud is for? There was life before the cloud, my dude, I said, rolling my eyes. I'm not even 30 yet, I thought. What's on these? You and Uncle Casey? I'm not sure. Probably a bunch of cringy pictures of me as a teenager. Can I see them? I paused for a moment. What was the worst that could happen? You gotta show your kids you're human, right? Uh, sure, why not? Just as I had suspected, after plugging the cards into the Mac in my office, we were greeted by a few albums of cringy photos. Looking into the eyes of my teenage self, 
I don't remember trying so hard to be angsty. Cameron got a good laugh out of them. As the bag slowly emptied, we got to a small, worn-out card with the gold tips on the end all scratched to hell. I wasn't even sure it was going to open. Shoving it in, we both waited for its contents to appear on the screen. After about a minute of suspense, it finally showed up. And to my surprise, it was a video. The preview thumbnail was just a black screen, and for the life of me, I couldn't remember what it was. Clicking on it, I heard myself on the other side of the screen. Are you serious? And it all came flooding back. It was 2008, my senior year of high school, and my best friend and I decided that what would really get us in the Halloween spirit was doing some honest-to-God ghost hunting. The endless woods of Maine offer no shortage of terrifying trees to get lost in, but we didn't want the cheap thrills of squirrels under leaves or the crying of fishers in the dark to get our hearts racing. Anthony and I wanted the real thing, and it just so happened that he knew a patch of white pines that were bonafide ghost territory. It was already dark when we crammed into my 88 Honda Accord. Pulling my seat forward, the sound of empty Dunkin' Donuts cups snapping on the floor made me cringe with embarrassment. Sorry about the mess, I said, glad it was too dark to see the redness in my cheeks. Anthony's silhouette shrugged. Who cares, man? Cars get dirty. You should see my dad's truck. It's fucking nasty. I played it cool. Yeah, yeah. You've never been to Fayette before, have you? He asked. No. Flipping on the overhead light, he unzipped his backpack and pulled out two sheets of crumpled paper. It's an hour drive from here, so MapQuested the way to my aunt's house just in case. I haven't been up here in a while, so we might just need this. He laughed and brushed the long brown hair away from his eyes. So, you ready? For real ghosts? Fuck yeah, dude, I said, turning the engine over. My head and heart were humming with the possibility of catching a glimpse of the other side. Perhaps it was because I was still in high school, but as we drove off into the dark, I never thought about what made a place haunted. The idea of a ghost seemed as natural as the landscape they were in. The fact that spirits were once living and breathing human beings with tragedies surrounding their lives and deaths was inconceivable. After about 30 minutes of driving, the car was nearing the E, and I made a slow turn into a rundown sitgo. Handing Anthony my last 30 bucks for gas and snacks, I waited by the pump for him to give me the thumbs up to start pumping. Standing out in the cold, my eyes drifted down the pitch black road, and it occurred to me that I hadn't seen a streetlight since we left Lewiston. A stiff October wind picked up, and the smell of gasoline and decaying leaves caused me to shiver involuntarily. I almost missed Anthony's overzealous waves from inside the gas station. After draining all 20 bucks into my tank, I nestled into the front seat and grabbed one of the energy drinks that were too big for the cup holder and a pack of cheap jerky from the plastic bag of snacks. Okay, so what's the story with the ghost? I said, cracking the top of my drink and stuffing it between my legs. Anthony popped some jerky into his mouth as we pulled back onto the road. I don't know the whole story, but my dad had some really scary experiences when he was a kid. Real spooky shit, huh? Okay, so the house is my grandparents' old home and my aunt moved in after they passed away. Dad didn't want it because of what he'd seen out in the woods. White lights in the trees, a shadow lady that stalked him. There was even a phantom dog. In the green glow of the dashboard, my stomach gave the first indication that perhaps I was not as excited about being in the dark as I thought I was. 
outside the reach of the headlights, half-naked trees pressed themselves closer to the edge of the road. The wind shook the leaves from their branches, which pressed them into the windshield with such force I had to turn the wipers on. The rumor was that some woman had tricked her own estranged son into marrying her so she could get pregnant for some satanic ritual. When the son figured out her plan, he ran to the church, told them what was going on, and then disappeared into the night. The whole plot was so unbelievably crazy that no one knew what to do with the case. They ended up kicking her out into the woods, hoping that God would take care of her. However, this lady ended up living out there for 40 years or something, dying at the age of 80. What was her name? Was all that came out. Emma, I think. Anyway, after all those years alone in the woods, when they found her body after one bad winter, it was said she hadn't aged at all, that the pact with the devil had kept her young. They buried her underneath the stone wall of the cemetery so her spirit couldn't get revenge on the townspeople. How the hell was she a ghost in the woods if they buried her in a cemetery? No one has ever found it, but somewhere in the woods is the witch's shack where she lived. Underneath the fireplace is supposed to be an iron plate that has her contract with Satan on it. The only way to kill her for good is to scratch out all the words with a silver knife. I chewed on the rest of the story for a bit without answering. I heard of the witch trials of Salem, obviously, but nothing this close to home. The image of real-life witches playing between the dead autumn leaves and scratching spells on the silver trunks of birch trees made me shiver. In my own backyard of green, we had Satan's Ridge, of course, which was reportedly a ground where you could communicate with the devil by spilling the blood of the innocent, but that was more of a quirk in the earth itself. But this was different. It's frightening how easily history turns women into witches. What Anthony didn't know was that this witch had a name and a story that was in many ways more haunting and tragic than the legend suggests. Despite a famous news article, a best-selling book, a PBS documentary entitled The Sins of Our Mothers, and local hearsay, no one can quite agree on the whole story of Emmeline Gurney. To some, she was a witch, a cautionary tale to others, and to those who lived more than an hour away, just a ghost story. No matter which story you hear, though, it's always told in the same three acts. Emmeline Gurney was born in the winter of 1816 to poor parents, and in 1830, she was sent away to work in the famous cotton mills of Lowell, Massachusetts. For a year, she worked hard to send money back up north to her family. When she turned 15, she fell in love with a local boy who worked on the docks. It started with a smile and ended with a pregnancy. She made plans through her church to have the baby in secret and give it away to a childless couple in the parish on the grounds after she gave birth. She would head back to Maine and never return to Lowell. Emmeline agreed. After nine months, a baby boy was born, and she started the long journey back home. The rumble of the dirt road died out as I pulled into the driveway of a quiet-looking home. The moon was high, and its silver light amplified by the sheer darkness of the country. Getting out of the car, I zipped up my jacket and walked around to the hood of the car, while Anthony grabbed supplies from his bag. Is anyone home? Anthony handed me a flashlight. 
Well, it's almost midnight, so it's safe to say Aunt Terry is sleeping. I mean, it's not like we need to go into the house anyway. You don't think she'll be mad we're out here? Reaching into the car, Anthony grabbed the small Sony camcorder and slipped it over his hand. No. What's that for? I asked. Dude, think about it. If we can catch something on camera, we could sell it for hundreds of dollars. Maybe even get famous. I nodded. Sure, man. Pulling a beanie on, I walked with Anthony from the driveway and down behind the house. The air was cold and still as we made our way into a large field filled with tall weeds and dead grass glowing gray under the moon. Beyond the grass was an impenetrable curtain of darkness created by the sweeping branches of large pine trees. Nearing the tree line, the air got thin and the silence between us strained in my ears. The sound came from all over and my legs went limp and I found myself ducking to the ground. I became instantly nauseous, my mouth thick with a metallic taste that seemed to rise and fall with my heartbeat. I squinted in the moonlight, looking for the ten-foot-tall creature that had just made its presence known but saw nothing. From over my shoulder, the beam from Anthony's flashlight cut through the dark. Did you see anything? I asked, standing up, dusting the dirt from my knees. No, nothing, he said, pointing his flashlight at the ground. It sounded like a dog, but I don't see shit out here. I clicked my light on and gave the empty field my once-over, shaking my head. Didn't your dad say there was a phantom dog out here? Yeah. You know, man, we don't have to look for the witch or, like, maybe we can come back when there's daylight to look for the cottage or ghost or whatever, I said. <laughs> don't be a bitch. We got this. Aw, oh, fuck. What? I said, my heart still pounding. I forgot to turn the camera on. Are you serious? Come on, man. Let's just get into the woods, okay? I followed behind Anthony as we crossed from the field to the woods. Holding the camera and the flashlight out in front of him, it was easy to tell that he was shaking as bad as I was. What they don't tell you about Old Pine Forest is how unnaturally quiet they are. All of those heavy branches, thick with thousands of tiny needles that absorbed both light and sound so completely you'd have thought you were on another planet. Armed with nothing but a flashlight, I felt naked in the deep quiet. Even the crunch of the dead leaves under our feet felt muted in the dark. I can't imagine living out in the woods alone, dying out here alone, like Emmeline did. It wasn't her fault. When the logging boys from Massachusetts came up in the summer of 1854 looking for work, she wasn't yet 40, and the man who caught her eye was halfway through his 20s. They were married before the summer was out. How was either of them supposed to know? Could you see your breath before? I asked, swinging the light in front of my face, blowing out deep breaths that turned into thick vapor. It's October, you idiot. Of course you can see your breath. Ah, oh. tell me if you see anything weird. Keep your light to the left and I'll check the right side. I shivered in the cold. We walked for almost 15 minutes without saying a word. I don't remember it being that long, but I became painfully aware of the silence watching the video. Cameron was getting visibly bored as we sat listening to the sound of Anthony's heavy breathing mixed in with the shaky camera work. 
Even though it wasn't that exciting, I didn't dare speed through because I knew it was coming. I just didn't know when. Should we just call it a night? I asked. I haven't seen anything that looks like a cottage or house foundation. I'm getting tired. Anthony sighed and turned around, pointing his lights and the camera at me. You could tell I was sweaty and exhausted. Fine, maybe there's nothing out here. Thanks for wasting my time, you dumb bitch. I might not have known much at 17, but yelling at the ghost of a dead witch was not advisable. As we stood there and waited, nothing happened. Anthony dropped the camera to his side, and all we could see was his dirty pants leg in the forest floor. His voice sounded muffled, distant. Let's go. Wait, hold up. The camera jerked up from the ground and was staring over my shoulder. Turn your light off. Do you see that? I don't remember seeing it at the time, but from Anthony's point of view, I could see it clearly. A small light was floating low to the ground in the distance, weaving in and out of the tree stumps like a lost soul. When the young man's parents came to visit him and his new wife, they recognized Emmeline immediately like the girl they took the baby from all those years ago. When the town found out, she was cast out. Her family turned their back on her. She was no longer welcome in the church, and the townsfolk wouldn't do business with her. Overnight, Emmeline was left to scrape for food from the land. I don't see anything, I heard my voice say. You don't see that fucking light? Shut the fuck up, dude. I'm fuck. Brandon? The camera had zoomed in on the light, and when it came back, I wasn't there. The hairs on the back of my neck stood up, and my mouth went dry. This wasn't what happened. This was not how it happened. Anthony left me. I turned around and he was gone. Dad? Where did you go? Shut up. Anthony mumbled to himself in the dark as his flashlight roved from tree to tree before dropping down to his side. Brandon! He screamed. The terror in his voice churned my stomach. My eyes were glued to the screen as I watched his legs shuffle in the dark. Brandon! I'm gonna leave if you don't say anything. Silence. Fuck, fuck, fuck. The ground moved once again. I could hear him talking to himself, but was unable to understand what he was saying. Something about the cold. Emmeline died in the winter of 1897. They found her frozen body in the snow. Brandon! More shuffling. Hey, what the fuck? I heard my voice cut. It made me feel sick. Where the fuck were you? You can't just run off of him like that. Are you fucking serious? The camera never left the ground. When they buried Emmeline in the spring of 1898, they couldn't bury her in the cemetery like everyone else. So they picked apart the rock wall surrounding it and dug a hole. You ran off on me. I have it on camera, you asshole. Shut the fuck. From the dark came a guttural wail that shook me through time and space. It was as if the trees themselves had begun screaming in one loud chorus. The inside of my head rolled and I shuddered. This part I had forgotten. This part I wanted to forget. 
Slamming the screen down, my heart was beating hard in my chest. I remembered everything in one painful swirl of darkness. Sprinting in the dark, hands over my eyes, so I didn't impale them on the loose branches in the trees. I remembered every burning scrape from sticks and brush as they took turns carving lines on my exposed skin. Leaning back in my chair, my brain shuffled that night in my mind, over and over, a deck of cards. I remembered Anthony giving me the SD card at school because it made him sick having it in his room. Now I know why. Dad, are you okay? I'm fine. Why don't you go help your mom with your sister, okay? He shrugged his tiny shoulders, reluctant to leave. As soon as the door shut behind him, I ejected the SD card and flipped it into the trash. I didn't need to see the rest. Today we featured three tales cleared for re-entry, written by Brianna Morgan and told by Graham Rowett. Portraiture, written by Davis Walden and told by David Alt. The Lady of the Wood, written by Cody Moore and told by me. To find out more about today's authors and voice actors, please visit thewickedlibrary.com and check out their bio pages. Our producer is Meg Williams. Our lead editor and executive producer is Scarlett R. Algy. Our resident composer and executive producer is Nico Vitese of We Talk of Dreams. Artwork for today's episode was created by Greg Schaefer. Our executive producer and art director is Jeanette Andromeda. Our showrunner and producer is Daniel Foytek. That's me. The Wicked Library is created by Ninth Story Studios, LLC. All rights reserved. <laughs>